Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights. How is everyone? Hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, today is the day. Today is announcement day. Today is the day. Starship Sofa Ditches the word podcast. Mmm. Yes, yeah, some might not um, think that is such a big thing, but yes, we are moving over now to we are now the audio science fiction magazine. There you go. Sounds rather nice and dandy, that doesn't it? So don't get it wrong. Still got roots in podcast and all that, and the show is going to exactly be exactly the same. It isn't going to change anything like that. But tonight is kind of what I want to do is give you the flavour of how things are going to go and progress. You know, just slightly. But I think this show tonight will raise the standard, shall we say? And I want to just kick off tonight straight away with a poem. Old Robots Are the Worst by Bruce Boston Lurching down the stairs, asking questions twice, pacing in lopsided circles as they speculate aloud on the cycles of man, the transpiration of tragedy, debating the Industrial Revolution and its ultimate unraveling in sonorous undertones. And all the while they are talking and pacing and avoiding our calls, We must wait and listen, annoyed, yet with increasing wonder at the depth and breadth of their encyclopedic knowledge, the strained eclectic range of their misunderstandings. And all the while their tedious palaver grows more sophistic and abstruse, the nictitating shudders of their eyes send and receive signals we have yet to translate a cyberglyph of a language composed of ticks and winks and lightning exclamations. At last they come to answer, to wheel us to the elevators. And you know, despite their incompetence and intransigence, beyond their endless babbling, one gets used to the old things, inured to their clank and shuffle, accustomed to the slow caress of their crinkled rubber flesh first appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine 1984 Asimov Reader's Choice Award, 1985. There, there you go. Thank you, Bruce Boston, for allowing us to narrate that short poem. Please do check out the website for links to Bruce Boston's website. And just like to say, thank you to Julie Davis for narrating 
Check out Julie's site as well. Links on the Starship Sofa website. So that's one avenue where Starship Sofa now is changing. So each, hopefully, each Wednesday night, I'll have some poetry on there. We'll have the audio fiction on there, and there might even be the the fact lectures as well. You know, don't forget we are getting Peter Watts to get something down on actually by himself as well. And stay tuned later on in the show for something else narrated by Peter Watts. Something that's absolutely fantastic, to be quite honest. So today's story is by Cage Baker, The Likely Lad. And this is, I read this a while ago in Asimov's. And I thought that would, you know, even then, before I was even doing podcasts or anything like that, you know, you can, the way Cage Baker's put our words down on paper, you just, your your mind kind of invents the voices. And you just know this is going to be a great story. And I asked Martin to narrate it. Martin is, if anyone remembers or wants to go and check out, the very first short story we put out by Michael Moorcock, London Bone. Martin did London Bone. And, like I say, the amount of emails and the amount of like positive feedback I got from that story was just amazing. So now I thought, oh, Martin would be so good for this story. And I was chatting with Martin, and he just said he had a riot doing it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's totally like a kind of... Although Cage Baker is American, this story is set purely, you know, it's like an English, English story. And when you listen to Martin, it is, he just hams it up, something not right. And I'm, I'm so pleased that I've gotten the hold of this story and I've gotten Cage Baker's permission to get this story narrated. And, you know, Martin's kindly done it. You know, everything's kind of seems like clicking together. And that's the same, you know, with this whole show. This is what I kind of want to do if you have a listen, you know, the... You get to the end of the show and you think, hey, that was all right. You know, I've got like a few little aspects coming into the show, which, you know, it's just slightly different from a normal kind of podcast. But for Cage Baker, apparently she spent 12 years in assorted navy blue uniforms, jobs, obtaining a good education and numerous, apparently numerous emotional scars. Apparently she's got this rapier wit, which was developed in, you know, in a kind of defence mechanism against like more powerful children who actually took offence to this abrasive, condescending and arrogant personality in a, a sickly eight-year-old. This is how she describes herself on our website. Family, she's got two parents, six siblings, four nieces, two nephews, no husbands and no children. She was also, prior to occupation as a writer, she was a graphic artist and mural painter, several lower lower clerical positions. She said, actually, which she describes as in no way could be actually classed as a career. Being a playwright, a bit player, director, teacher of Elizabethan English for the stage. And she also says about the Elizabethan period, she says 20 years of total immersion into research, into Elizabethan as well as historical periods, has kind of, she says, paid off handsomely in work and knowledge of the period and the speech and the details. And it's not just like Elizabethan. Do you know, like you say, you know, the English language is a kind of, you know, the UK, you know, English language, you know, our British, yes, our British way, you know, you've got to get it right. Do you know what I mean? There is certain kind of hiccups you you can make mistakes with. Cage Baker, in this story, likely, lad, just, you know, you wouldn't think it's written from... I'm not being, like, condescending or cheeky or anything like that, but you wouldn't think it was a US writer who's scribbled this. You know, you would think, oh, it definitely came from an English author. So please check out Cage Baker's stuff. We have another story by Cage Baker coming soon, or one day. And like I say, narration is by Martin from MCL Studios. 
drop us an email if you want to get praise. He hasn't got a website. I keep on telling him, get a website, sort out professional. <laughs> the reader hasn't got a website. But this story is just fantastic. So, without further ado, The Starship Sofa presents The Likely Lad by Cage Baker. And it's growing up into such a nice boy said Mrs. Lewin, fondly, pouring out a cup of herbal tea. So thoughtful. Do you know, he's doing all his own laundry now. I never have to remind him at all. Lewin grunted acknowledgement, absorbed in his cricket match. It was only a hollow of a game played a century earlier. Competitive sports had been illegal for decades now, but it was one that he'd never seen. Though the water rate's a bit high, Mrs. Lewin added, setting the pot back in place and covering it with a tea cosy. Not that his lordship can't afford it, goodness knows. But the borough council gets so nasty if they suspect you're wasting anything. I said perhaps Alec ought to save it all up for once a week, but he wouldn't hear of it. Changes his sheets every day. Won't let me do it for him at all. Well, I can understand that, I said. Fresh bed linens are a treat. And aren't you the dear to save me coming all the way upstairs and rummaging that old hamper for your socks? Lewin dragged his attention away from the lost green paradise of Lords and played back what she'd been saying. Changes his sheets every day? Yes. Isn't that responsible of our Alec? It seems like only yesterday he was toddling about and screaming every time I tried to take the face flannel to him. And now... Now he's fourteen. Hmm. How time flies. Hmm. Lewin paused the hollow and stood. Yes, I think I'll go and have a word with the boy about the water rate all the same. He plodded up the kitchen stairs. Mr. and Mrs. Lewin were Alec's butler and cook. He lived with them in a mansion in London. Alec's father, the sixth Earl of Finsbury, lived on a yacht somewhere in the Caribbean, and his mother, the Right Honourable Cecilia Ashcroft, was somewhere else, and Alec hadn't seen either of them in ten years. As a result, Lewin had been obliged to shepherd Alec through most of his childhood. Lewin was not the only one providing Alec with fatherly advice, though he was unaware of this. If he had been aware, he might have spared himself the long climb up to the fourth floor of the house, which was Alec's domain. Wheezing slightly, Lewin paused on the third floor landing. He could hear the hideous dissonance of Darwin's shoes vibrating above, loud enough to rattle the pictures of Alec's parents in their frames. Lewin didn't mind that Alec was listening to crap music much too loud. He was secretly relieved when Alec did something normal for a boy his age, for reasons that will shortly become apparent. But if the music were loud enough, the neighbours would call the public health monitors, and that was to be avoided at all costs in this city of London in this dismal future time. So, Lewin gritted his teeth and took the last flight at his best speed. Having arrived on the fourth floor without coronary arrest, he hammered on Alec's door, which was spectred all over with little moving shots of Darwin's shoes, folded space and other bands Alec happened to think were cool that week. Lewin felt a certain satisfaction at knocking right through the irritating young faces. Almost immediately, the door opened a bit and one eye peered out at him, a very pale blue eye, a long way up. Alec, at fourteen, was already six feet tall. 
"'Would you mind granting me an interview?' shouted Lewin, glaring up at the eye. "'Sorry!' Alec opened the door wide, with one hand hastily stuffing something into his pocket with the other. He waved, and mercifully the decibel level dropped. Lewin stepped over the threshold and looked around. Nothing suspicious in sight, at least on the order of bottles or smoking apparatus, and no telltale fume in the air. Light paintings of ships drifted across the walls, and phantom clouds moved across the ceiling. It was an effect that invariably gave Lewin vertigo, so he focused his attention on the boy in front of him. "'Didn't I explain what would happen if you played that stuff loud enough to annoy the neighbours? Lewin demanded. "'Oh, they can't hear it,' Alec assured him. "'I've got a baffle field projected off the walls of the house. Soundwaves just fall into it, see? I could set a bomb off in here and nobody would know.' "'Please don't,' said Lewin, sighing. He had no idea what a baffle field was, but not the slightest doubt that Alec could create one. He shifted from foot to foot, and Alec, eyeing him nervously, pulled out a chair. "'Would you like to sit down?' "'Yeah, thanks.' Alec stood before him a moment, trying not to put his hands in his pockets, and finally retreated to his bed and sat down on its edge, which would nearly put him on Lewin's eye-level standing. In addition to being extremely tall, Alec Checkerfield had a rather unusual face, at least in that day and age. Small, deep-set eyes, remarkably broad and high cheekbones, a long nose and immense teeth. He looked like a terribly noble horse. "'What have you been doing up here, then?' "'Nothing,' said Alec. "'I, I mean, uh, you know, studying.' "'Hmm,' Lewin glanced over at the communications console. "'Well, you remember when we had that talk about you hitting puberty?' Alec flushed and looked away, but his voice was light and careless as he said, "'Sure.' "'You remember how we talked about using shields?' "'Uh, yeah.' "'You need me to get you any? Happy healthies, all that lot?' "'No, thanks, sir.' "'Right. And you do know, don't you, that even if a girl says yes, "'if she says it before she's eighteen, it doesn't count?' "'Alec nodded, not raising his eyes. "'And you can get in no end of trouble, "'worse than being carted off by the public health monitors.' "'Yep,' said Alec. "'Right,' said Lewin, getting to his feet. "'Just so you know.' He paused by the door and cleared his throat. And it uses up a lot of water, doing laundry every day. People will talk. Can't you try and uh, not do that? Yes, said Ike. Right, said Lewin. I'm off downstairs then. OK. Lewin edged out and pulled the door shut after him. He shook his head, and once again, as he descended the long stairs, cursed Roger Checkerfield for never coming home. The moment Lewin had turned the corner of the landing, a voice in Alec's room said, "'There now, didn't I tell you they notice?' As the hoarse baritone spoke, a column of light flashed in mid-air, and the speaker appeared. He was an immense man in early 18th-century clothing, and his beard was wild and black. His face was wicked. There were two pistols and a cutlass thrust through his wide belt. "'Oh, piss off,' muttered Alec. "'I can't help it.' "'What about I order you a few dozen of them recyclable cloth tissues, eh, matey?' the apparition offered. "'On the quiet, like.' 
Can't I have privacy any more? Oh, son, don't take on so. It ain't like I was a person, is it now? Who you to care if an old machine like me knows your little secrets? Said the apparition. You're a lot more than a machine. Well, thank ye, lad, but I knows me place. Yet Alec was correct, for Captain Morgan, as the apparition was named, was a great deal more than a mere machine. In fact, he was a great deal more than the fairly powerful Pembroke playfriend artificial intelligence he had been when Lewin had purchased him for Alec nine years earlier. Had Lewin known that little Alec had managed to reprogram the playfriend and, moreover, remove its ethical governor so that its drive to fulfil its primary objective, to protect and nurture Alec, was completely unhindered by scruples of any kind, he'd have been horrified. All in all, it was a good thing Lewin didn't know. He was worried enough by all the other unusual things young Alec could do. The captain now considered the disconsolate boy before him. Bloody hell, this would be a lot easier if I was an organic. You and me'd just take the bus over to Egypt at weekend, and I'd find my boy a nice couple of whores. Ha! That'd take a reef in your mainsail by thunder. Alec groaned and put his head in his hands. Having an imaginary child friend who persisted into his adolescence was embarrassing enough. The idea that Captain was taking an interest in his, even more imaginary, sex life was intolerable. Look, I really don't feel like talking about this right now, OK? Not with that Force 10 testosterone storm raging, I reckon you don't, the Captain agreed. He put his hands behind his back and paced, and the Maldacena projector in the ceiling turned in its pivot mounting to allow him to move across the room. He gave the appearance of drawing a deep breath, and went on. Look, son, I got programming, says I got to keep you clear of wrecks, see? You mind old Lewin. I don't care how bouncy that there Beatrice Louise Jagger was yesterday after Social Interaction 101. The lass is only fourteen. Like you... "'and neither one of you's got any idea what's going on. "'You takes her up on any invitations short of a tea party "'and you'll both wind up in hospital on hormone treatments, "'likely for the rest of your little lives.' "'It's not fair. "'How do you know about me and Beatrice?' "'I got me ways, lad.' "'Thanks to some of the modifications Alec had made for him, "'he had long since been able to tap into the surveillance cameras "'mounted everywhere in London "'and so monitor his charges' progress in the world outside. "'Now, it's almost the end of term. "'You're going to have a lovely holiday in Bournemouth. "'We don't want to spoil it, do we?' "'No.' "'So let me see if I can't turn your attention to something a bit less dangerous "'than the right honourable Ms Jagger's knickers, eh? Huh? "'It's time we was taking a prize, matey. We need more loot.' "'Well, we've already got tons of loot,' said Alec in surprise. "'I ain't talking about date or plunder, son. I mean money. "'I plan to build up a private fortune for you, "'one I can hide so no one knows where there's no tax, see? "'That way, even if you and Jolly Roger should have a difference of opinion some day, "'it won't matter if he cuts you off without a penny.' "'How could we ever argue about anything?' Roger never talks to me at all. Birthdays and solstice, I get presents, if he remembers, but not even an audio memo in ten tracking years. Well, now, son, even if you does get your inheritance without a hitch, there ain't no telling when that'll be, and you want to be free and independent in the meantime, don't you? I guess so, yes. So here's what we does, matey. 
The captain grinned, showing a lot of very white teeth in his dark face. You'll peer about their encryptions a bit, like the smart lad you be, and get me into the databases of the Eurobank and Wells Fargo and some of them other fine big old houses. I goes to work and does a little old-fashioned transference theft, like nobody ain't done in decades on account it ain't supposed to be possible nowadays. Yeah, and oh, just a yen here and a dollar there, and all of it stowed safe in a nice Swiss account under a fictitious name, eh? Just in enough to get you a nice nest egg of what, a million pound or so? Mm, what can I start with? Alec had been listening intently, and now he frowned. Wait a minute. Did you say theft? You mean you want us to steal money out of a bank? No, no, matey, not one bank. Somebody noticed that. We loot banks all over the world, the captain explained, but Alec was shaking his head. That'd be stealing, captain. That's wrong. Breaking in and copying data's one thing, but we'd actually be hurting people if we took their money. The captain growled and rolled his eyes. Son, I'm talking about the teensiest little amounts. Nothing anybody'd miss. The flea couldn't light on what we'd be taking. You could put it over Canary's ass and still have room for... No, I'm not going to do it, said Alec, with a stubborn downturn of mouth that the captain knew all too well. He pulled at his beard in exasperation and then mustered all his tact. Alec, laddie, all these years I've been a pirate, just like you wanted me to be when you first set me free from that damn playfriend module. Ain't I been a hard-working old AI? Ain't I gone along with the earring and cocked hat and cutlass all the rest of the programmer? Ain't I schemed to keep you safe and happy all this time? And don't you think, being a criminal like I am, that once in a while I might get a chance to actually steal something? Steal all the data you like, but we're not going after banks. Red lights flashed on the console and static buzzed from the speakers. The captain was doing the electronic equivalent of gnashing his teeth. His eyes, that were changeable as the sea, darkened to an ominous slaty colour. And then, as an alternative suggested itself to him, they brightened to a mild Atlantic blue. Aye, aye. No Robin Banks, then. What kind of a score is that for a sailor, anyhow? Be like we won't steal nothing from nobody after all. Be like there's a better way. I'll bet you can come up with lots better plans, agreed Alec hurriedly. If he was experiencing the qualms of guilt any other boy would feel on telling a beloved parent he was dropping out of school. The captain eyed him slyly and paced up and down a moment in silence. We gotta get money, matey, no arguing over that. But... We might earn it. Yeah, said Alec at once, and then a certain reluctance came into his voice. Uh, how? Oh, you could use up your holiday in Bournemouth, getting some lousy summer job, said the captain, wearing a little white hat and peddling fruit ices, eh? <laughs> Grilling soy patties in a back kitchen or waiting tables for tips. Mind you, it'd take all your summer holidays clear through to university to earn a tenth of what we need. That's if you find somebody to hire you once they found out you was peerage and trying to take employment away from less fortunate boys. Or we might do a bit of smuggling. Smuggling? Yeah, ain't smuggling just supply and demand? Long as we didn't smuggle nothing that hurt nobody, which we wouldn't. But all them bloody stupid Euromarket laws makes for no end of opportunities for a likely lad with a fast craft. You was planning on chartering another little sailboat for the summer, weren't you? 
That's right, said Alec, his eyes widening as he began to see the possibilities. Well then, we'll put her to good use. You let me scan the horizon, son. I reckon I'll find us some honest folk who could use a little help in the export trade, said the captain, watching Alec's reaction. Yeah! Alec's face shone with enthusiasm. Wow, captain, this wouldn't be a game, would it? This would be real, with real danger and everything. Certain it would, matey, the captain told him, privately resolving that there wouldn't be the least possibility of danger. What an adventure! But we got to sign articles first, son. I got to have your affy davy so you'll keep your hands off the little missies in your circle of thirty. Sure, I mean it now. No more of that sweet talk about asking them to explore the amazing mysteries of life with you and all that. Alec scowled and turned red again. Wasn't exactly what I said, I. But it near bagged you a right honourable, and you without a box of happy healthies, hm? One week till the end of term, son. My boy can keep his hands to himself until then, can't he? Aye, aye, sighed Alec. There's a good lad. I'll just get myself into the main top now and see if I can't spy us out a few connections, shall I? Alec nodded. The captain winked out, and Alex sat there for a moment before rising to his feet and pulling out the graphics plaquette he had hidden in his pocket on hearing Lewin's knock. Holding it close to his face, he thumbed it on and peered at the screen. His pupils dilated as the tiny woman appeared on screen and smiled at him invitingly. He glanced sidelong at the captain's cameras. Monsieur Dupre had an office in Cherbourg, in Greater Armorica. He neither bought nor sold commodities, but he made arrangements for others who bought and sold them. Cherbourg was the ideal location from which to do business. Armorica, being a member of the Celtic Federation, but also technically part of France, had two complete sets of trade regulations from which to pick and choose – Businessmen, like Monsieur Dupre, could custom-tailor a hybrid of statutes and ordinances from both political entities to justify any particular action taken on any given day. As a result, Monsieur Dupre scarcely ever ran the risk of arrest. This was good, for he did not enjoy danger. He left the more dangerous side of his business to certain persons whom he did not officially know. There were several persons he did not know working for him, doing things he did not know about, with ships that did not exist in official registries. So complicated was this little dance of deniability, that when Monsieur Dupre's shadow employees really actually stopped working for him, it sometimes took several months to determine that they'd quit, and still longer to find replacements for them. In the meantime... Non-existent cargoes sat unshipped in non-existent warehouses, and Monsieur Dupre lost real money. In order to avoid the attentions of unpleasant men with Gaelic accents who liked to break arms and legs, he sent out a desperate inquiry on certain channels and sat in his office in Cherbourg drumming his fingers on his communications console, hoping someone would reply soon. Monsieur Dupre was in luck. On this Thursday evening... Someone did reply. A yellow light flashed on the console, signifying that a hollow transmission was coming through, and a moment later the console's projector activated and a man materialised before Monsieur Dupre's eyes. <coughs> You'd be Box 17 Greater Armorica Logistics, he inquired in a heavy English accent. 
He was tall and broad and impeccably dressed in a three-piece business suit. His black beard was neat, if unusually thick. His black hair bound back in a power cue. I don't believe I know you, sir, said Monsieur Dupre cautiously. I don't know you either, dear sir, and that's for the best, isn't it? The stranger grinned fiercely. But we have friends in common who inform me you have a transportation difficulty. That is a possibility, admitted Monsieur Dupre. References would be required. And are being downloaded now. I understand your usual transport personnel seems to have left without a forwarding com code. Monsieur Dupre shrugged, hoping his hologram picked up the gesture. I understand that those Celtic gentlemen would like some sugar for their tea and are getting a little impatient that it hasn't been shipped to them. How unfortunate. Very unfortunate indeed for yourself, said the stranger. I wouldn't want to be caught between those Celts and the Breton sugar beet growers. You can't afford to lose your business reputation, can you? Who can? Monsieur Dupre smiled noncommittally. He eyed the references. They appeared genuine and gave a Monsieur Morgan the highest praise as a discreet and reliable operator. Monsieur Dupre attempted to verify them, and thanks to the elaborate double protocols Alec had built into the codes, everything appeared to check out. Of course, reputation can be a bad thing too, said the stranger, as when certain vessels become too well known to the coastal patrols. I suppose so. Monsieur Dupre's interest was piqued. Was this a new operator moving into the territory? I suppose, in that case, they might sail to Tahiti, which might create an opportunity for someone else. So it might. But I've been remiss. I must introduce myself. Monsieur Morgan, dear sir, I may be in a position to provide you with assistance in your present time of need. Monsieur Dupre, deciding the moment had come, said simply, One run, seventy-five billion euros. The stranger looked thoughtful. Seventy-five billion, that's, uh, let me see, nine hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Not much cargo, I take it. Six cases, twenty kilos each. A trifle, said the stranger, making a dismissive gesture. There is a slight difficulty... Ah, now, that would drive my price up. I said it was a slight difficulty. The cargo must be recovered from the place in which it was abandoned. What unprofessional people you must have known, dear sir. Say, um, 20% above the previous figure? 15. Recovery should be a simple matter. It's off a sea land outpost in the channel. I'll need my divers then. Uh, 17%. The destination? Pool. Very good. Time is of the essence, I imagine. Not at all, said Mr. Dupre, lying through his teeth. In that case, I shall consider the matter and get back to you in, say, two days. Tomorrow would be more convenient, to be frank. The stranger smiled at him. Why, then, tomorrow it is, sir. Au revoir. And he vanished. He bought it, whooped Alec, jumping up from his console. Of course he did, the captain replied, preening. If his bioelectric scans is any indication, we'll clinch it tomorrow. I've always wanted to do something like this, said Alec, pacing restlessly. The open sea, the fast boat, a secret business, yeah! Oh, this is the closest thing we've ever got to being real pirates, I suppose. Well, laddie, one ought to move with the times, the captain replied, pretending to shoot his cuffs and straighten his tie. That's true, that's true, yes. Uh, speaking of which, um, that's a good look for you, you know. 
like that better than the old cocked hat and 18th century rig, do you? Less embarrassing for a sophisticated young lord about town. Damn, boy, I like the soup myself. Sort of a gentleman's gentleman, but with some bloody presence, eh? What you say I appear like this from here on, eh? Brilliant! But we'll still be sea rovers, right? More than we ever was, matey, the captain told him, to the tune of £950,000. Plus 17%? Plus 17%. Smart as paint, my boy. Alex's holidays had been spent at Bournemouth in one rented villa or another ever since he'd come to England, after the divorce. When he'd been small, he built sandcastles and told inquiring adults that the Lewins, watchful from their beach chairs, were his grandparents. When he'd outgrown sandcastles, he'd gone surfing or explored Westbourne. Here he'd found a public garden planted on the site of a house where Robert Louis Stevenson had once lived. Stevenson was Alec's favourite author, though he'd never read any of his books. Only children who were going on to lower clerical jobs were taught to read nowadays, after all. Now, Alex had assiduously collected every version of Treasure Island ever filmed. Being an exceptionally bright boy, he'd been able to spell out enough of the commemorative plaque in the garden to tell him whose house had once stood there. He'd run home in great excitement to tell the Lewins, who smiled and nodded and turned their attention back to their illegal bridge game with another elderly couple. The last two summers, however, Alec had ventured through the pines and gone over to Lilliput, beyond Canford Cliffs. At Sultan's Marina there was a place that rented sailboats and for an extra fee would provide an instructor in the art of sailing. So quickly had Alec picked it up that in no time at all he'd been able to take his tiny craft out of the harbour and into Pool Bay by himself, working his way between Brown Sea Island and Sandbanks like an old sailor. Tacking back and forth, getting sunburnt and wet with the sea spray, catching the winds and racing sidelong over blue water, squinting against the glitter of high summer, Alec was happy. There was no one to apologise to out on the water, no one who wanted explanations. The global positioning satellites might be tracking his every move, but at least they were far up and unseen. He had at least the illusion of freedom, and really that was all anybody had these days. Sometimes he took his boat as far out on the bright horizon as he dared and stretched out on the tiny deck and lay looking up at the sky where the high sun swung behind the mast top like a pendulum. Sometimes he thought about never coming in at all. Today, Alec whistled shrilly through his teeth as he travelled along Haven Road on his rocket cycle. Well, the idea that it rocketed anywhere was a pathetic joke. It had an anti-grav drive and floated, barely able at its best speed to outpace a municipal bus. But the sun was hot on his back and felt good and the pine woods were aromatic and he was on his way to have his first ever real adventure on the high seas. Arriving at the marina, Alec stored the rocket cycle and strode down the ramp towards his mooring, carrying a small black case. He waved at the attendant as he passed. The attendant smiled and nodded kindly. He was under the impression Alec was the victim of some sort of bone disease that had made him abnormally tall and which would shortly prove fatal, so he was invariably courteous and helpful. It took imminent death to provoke decent customer services nowadays. Looks like a great day to be out there, Alex called, boarding the little Cyrene. Bright, agreed the attendant. Think I'll stay out all day. OK, said the attendant. 
He watched from his chair as the boy powered up the fusion drive, checked all the instruments, cast off and moved out, running up the little sail. Then he settled back and turned his attention to his game unit, feeling pleased with himself for his tolerance and trying once more to recall which hollow programme it was that had done a two-minute feature on genetic freaks. Alec, once he'd cleared sandbanks, moved into the masking wake of the San Marlow ferry and glanced up involuntarily in the direction of the currently orbiting satellite. He opened his black case, which appeared to be a personal music system, slipped on ear shells, found the lead and connected it to the Sirene's guidance and communication console. He gave it a brief and carefully coded command. From that moment onward, the satellite received a false image, and somewhere in a dark room of a thousand lit screens, one screen was persuaded to show nothing but images of the Sirene tacking aimlessly and innocently back and forth all day. The object in the black case, which was not a personal music system, shot out a small antenna. The antenna fanned into a silver flower at one end, and from this a cone of light shot forth faintly and nearly transparent in the strong sunlight, and a moment later the captain materialised. Ah! He made a rude gesture at the sky. Kiss my ass, GPS. They won't suspect a thing now. Oh, son, what a lucky day it was for me when I shipped out with a bloody little genius like you. Not so little any more, Alec reminded him, taking the tiller and turning the siren a point into the wind. To be sure, the captain turned to regard Alec fondly. My boy's growing up. His first smuggling run. Faking out a whole satellite system all by himself. Ain't nobody else in the world but my Alec can do that. I wonder why they can't, Alec speculated, peering back at the rapidly dwindling mainland. It seems really easy. Am I that different from them? Different is as different does, matey, said the captain smoothly, adjusting his lapels. He wasn't about to explain just how different Alec was, especially at this time of adolescent anxiety. To be truthful, the captain himself wasn't sure of the extent of Alec's abilities, or even why he had them. He knew enough to hide Alec's genetic anomalies on routine medical scans. He'd done enough stealthy searching to discover that Alec's DNA type made it extremely unlikely that he was a member of the human race as it presently existed, let alone the son of either Roger Checkerfield, Lord Finsbury, or the Right Honourable Cecilia Ashcroft, as his birth certificate stated. But why upset the boy? I've been thinking, said Alec, that as long as I can do stuff the rest of them can't, I ought to do good for everybody, don't you think? I bet a lot of people would like to have some privacy for a change. We could set up a consulting firm or something that would show people how easy it was to get around Big Brother up there. Oh, now, son, that's a right noble plan, the captain agreed. Only problem with it is we don't want to lose our advantage, do we? As long as it's just you and me has the weather gauge of them satellites, why, there ain't no way they'll ever know we're getting round them. But if you was to let other folks in on the secret, well, sooner or later there'd be trouble, see? I guess so. We draw attention to ourselves. And we got to avoid that like it was the Goodwin Sands, son, or it'd be hospital for you and a diagnostic disassembly for me. And farewell to freedom. Plenty of time for do-gooding once we got you stinking rich, says I. You can give millions to charity then, eh? Alec, thinking uneasily of a life immured in a padded cell in hospital, nodded. He squared his shoulders and said, Aye, aye, Captain, sir. So, when do we rendezvous with the Long John? Let's take her father out into the channel first, boy. Two points south-southwest. Mr. Leem had an office in the Isle of Wight. 
but he was seldom there. His job kept him out at sea most days and many nights, for he was the Channel Patrol. Up until a week earlier, he had enjoyed that title exclusively. But the Trade Council had decreed that he train an assistant. Mr Lean was secure enough in his self-esteem to take this as a compliment. He knew his job was vital to the well-being of the nation. He simply wished they'd hired someone English. Not that I hold your ancestry against you in any way, he told Riley. Of course, but it's a tough job, you see. Requires deep personal commitment, clear understanding of the dangers involved, constant vigilance. I thought I was just cruising round trying to catch the euro, slipping us with a national product and all messing up our economy, said Riley. Where's the danger in that? Mr. Leem grimaced, then assumed his most patient expression. Coming as you do from a um, more permissive culture, you mightn't understand. As a member of the Channel Patrol, you have a duty, a sacred duty, to prevent murder. Murder? Riley cried. Nobody at the council interview said anything about murder? I'll try to put this in your terms. Your ethnic affiliation have a lot of... Uh, children. Now, suppose one day you were minding someone's baby and saw a vicious criminal sneaking up on the innocent thing, offering it a shiny bottle of poison. Well, Riley, what would you do? Would you let the little creature drink the poison down? They have no sense, you see. They'll ingest any kind of toxic substance if it tastes nice. No, as a moral human being, you'd say it was your duty to snatch the nasty little stuff away before harm was done. So the Euros have a secret plot going to poison babies? Riley inquired cautiously, wondering if Mr. Leem were crazy as well as bigoted. In effect, yes, they do. Think about this for a moment. Consumers are like babies, aren't they? You can't trust themselves to know any better than to indulge themselves in what's bad for them. That's why we made moral, sensible prohibitions to protect them all. The strong world must protect the weak against the profiteers who would entice them with their impurities. Okay, but how's a bottle of poily fuse that nobody but rich people can afford anyway going to do harm? Mr. Leem shook his head sadly. If only it were simple as that, he said. They deal in far worse than wine. Think of the hideous immorality involved in the mere production of cheese, man. The enslavement of animals. The forced extrusion of foul, stinking, mouldy curds of stuff so full of grease and bacteria it runs on the plate and plays havoc with the intestines. What civilised country would allow something like that on the market? And coffee. Horrible little black beans like cockroaches full of toxins. You wouldn't enjoy being a caffeine addict, I can tell you. Fingers trembling, teeth stained and chattering, heart pounding, eyes popping, arteries worn right through from the strain, aneurysm striking any time and exploding your brain. Mr. Leem smote the navigation console with his fist. Bam! Like that! And tea! Just as bad! Even more insidious because the fool consumers get sentimental about it. And, and, and cocoa's bad enough with all those exotic alkaloids to stimulate unnatural desires. Can you imagine there was a time when people fed it to their children? But chocolate! 
a dreadfully oily, voluptuous, insinuating filth, just full of addictive chemicals and loaded with refined sugar, eating away at your teeth with acids until they're worn down to broken, suppurating snags. Peanuts, bloating you with calories and swelling you with toxic gases and salts. Bleached flour to load your system with invisible toxins. Ghastly black messes of fish roe. Think of the outrage done to the harmless sturgeon. I never realised who'd gone as green as an organic pistachio. Mr. Leem wiped the foam from the corner of his mouth and looked stern. And this man is why we live. Only we can preserve the general prohibition, for without our ceaseless care, the nation's borders will be overrun with peddlers of pollution. Yes, sir, said Riley, with new eyes peered fearfully across the lowering darkness of Armorica. I'm picking up the long john, matey, the captain informed Alec. Two kilometres southwest and closing fast. Cool, Alec turned expectantly and watched the horizon and presently saw the tiny foaming wake making straight for the Cyrene, for all the world as though a torpedo had been launched at her. Within a few yards of her hull, it bobbed to the surface and halted, then came slowly forward with a distinct paddling motion. "'Who's my smart little Long John, then?' crooned Alec. Grinning, he bent over the gunwale and lifted from the waters something that looked like a cross between a toy submarine and a mechanical dog. Alec had created it over the previous week, using odds and ends he had in his room and employing principles that seemed fairly basic to him, but which no human presently living could have grasped. He had launched it on the previous evening, dropping it quietly off the end of Bournemouth Municipal Pier. "'Been out nosing around like I programmed you?' What do you find? Let's see. Yeah? The Long John drew in its paddles and sat motionless as Alec connected a lead from the console to a port in its nose. The captain crouched down and regarded it, scowling with concentration. All systems operational, he confirmed. Data's coming in now. Looks like you've done the job by thunder. Here's them coordinates. He lifted his head and looked out into the distance to the bleak hull of the old Sealand platform. The cargo's there, all right. Smack on the sea bottom, 30 metres off the northwest pylon. I'm setting a course now. Bring her round, son. Aye, aye, Captain, sir. In the early part of the 21st century, there'd been a brief fad for civil liberty that had taken the form of establishing tiny, independent countries in international waters built on floating platforms or abandoned oil rigs. This had given rise to a loosely organised federation collectively known as Sealand. Eventually, as the second age of sail dawned, people realised it was much more convenient simply to live aboard mega-clippers. The cramped Sealand outposts themselves were abandoned. Rusting, hoary now with guano, they stood, and seabirds nested in their blind windows and gaping doors. Dark birds of another kind, entirely, used the platforms as landmarks and places to rendezvous, which is why 120 kilos of refined sugar, one of the most expensive of controlled substances in this day and age, lay scattered in its vacuum-sealed crates on the seabed nearby. "'We're over em now, son,' the captain announced with satisfaction. "'Let's see if the tiny bugger's up to his programming.' "'Of course he is.' said Alec, disconnecting the long john and lifting it over the side. The moment it touched the surface, its little paddles deployed and it trod water patiently while Alec attached a length of cable to its stern. 
When the cable was in place, it dove down, vanishing swiftly in the green water, and the cable unspooled after it until it popped off the reel and floated down out of sight. Alex smirked and gave the captain two thumbs up. Telemetry coming back now, growled the captain, staring at the horizon in a preoccupied kind of way. Ah, there's the loot. Initiating recovery mission. Brilliant, said Ike, and leaned back at the tiller. Far below the siren's keel, the Long John settled on the nearest of the sugar crates and extended a pair of manipulative members. It set about reeving one end of its cable through the crate's carry handle, and when it had done that and tied it off securely, it rose and paddled off to the next crate, towing the cable after it. Yes, the old seal on stations, said Mr. Leem, shaking his head. You'd think they were something innocent, wouldn't you? Lovely sport for turns and what not to rest, oh yes. But they've got the stink of civil disobedience about them. Nobody could live there any more, said Riley. He squinted through the scopex at the platform near which the serene was currently busy. I can't even see a fusion generator. Oh, uh, there's a bird doing something nasty to another bird. I thought only... It's a nasty world, Riley, said Mr. Leem. Where criminals grab every chance to carry out their wicked trade. They've been using that very platform as one of their meeting places, you know. I've been watching it for some time now. Last month I nearly had them. The Lysian out of Wexford, registered to the Federation Celtic as usual, was always hanging about here. What's a sport vessel with all that cargo space, I ask you? Probably engaged in fishing too, the murdering bastards. What happened? inquired Riley, a little testy over the slur on the Celtic Federation. I caught them in the act. Taking something from the Tintin out of St. Malo, bored down on the boat with my siren roaring, and they dropped everything and fled over the horizon. But the Lysian will be back. Sooner or later they'll think I've forgotten them. Sooner or later they'll think it's safe to sneak back and recover what it was they had to sink. I'll be waiting when they do, and I'll have a little surprise for them too. Uh, there's somebody out there now, you know. Don't be ridiculous. There are no vessels within a five-kilometre radius of the platform. The satellite readout's perfectly clear. It says so right here. Well, I guess I'm seeing a mirage or something, then. And there, the matter might have rested. But Mr Leem, with a sudden flash of the intuition that made him such a successful opponent of evildoers, recalled that his enemies were all fiendishly clever after all. He grabbed the scopex from Riley and trained it again on the distant station. There is a boat! he yelled. But it's not the Lysiane. What do they think they're playing at? Well, they won't fool me. He dropped the scopex and hauled on the wheel, bringing his cutter about sharply and making for the platform under full power. Riley yelped as cold spray hit him and he grabbed at the rail. Are we going to scare them off? No, replied Mr. Lean. Grinning through clenched teeth, he reached over and squeezed in a command on the console. Riley gaped as a panel opened in the forward deck and a laser cannon rose into bow chaser position. Jesus! Those are illegal! So is smuggling! We'll board and search, and if we meet the least resistance, we'll sink them! Such is justice on the high seas, Riley! The Long John had managed to tie up all six crates. Extending a hook, it caught the looped cable and rose through the water, towing the crates after it like a great unwieldy bunch of grapes. Reaching the limit of its strength, straining upward, it activated a tiny anti-gravity field and promptly shot up through the gloom like a cork released from a bottle, the crates zooming ponderously behind it as it rose towards the siren's hull. 
Coastal patrol cutter to port, roared the captain, pointing. Bloody hell, that son of a whore has got ordnance. You mean cannons? Oh, wow! Turning sharply, the captain scanned Alec. His senses picked up the boy's terror, but to his consternation, there was something more. Excitement, anticipation, physical arousal. Alec watched the cutter speeding towards them and, without conscious intent, began to smack his right fist into his left palm quite hard. "'Are we going to fight them, Captain, sir?' he said eagerly. "'Oh, no, that's dumb. I guess we'll just have to give them a run for their money.' "'We ain't done neither one, boy,' the captain snapped. "'We're going to sit tight and lay through your teeth, understand? "'I'll get below and manage the long john. Just you calm down.' "'I am calm,' Alec protested, but the captain had already vanished.' Alec turned uncertainly to watch the cutter approach, as, a fathom below, the Long John dove again and pulled its load into the obscurity of a kelp forest. There it waited, warily scanning the surface. "'Heave to and prepare to be boarded,' ordered Mr. Leem, his voice echoing across the water. "'You are under suspicion of violation of International Maritime Ordinance 56624B, paragraph 30, clause 15.' "'Uh, okay.' Alec bellowed, thrilled to his bones. He felt more alive at this moment than he could ever remember feeling and wished with all his heart he had a sword or pistol or even just the ability to launch himself across the space between the boats and start swinging with his bare fists. It took all his self-control to sit quietly at the tiller, an innocent expression on his face, and watch as the cutter pulled alongside and Mr. Leem jumped into the tiny serene. Mr. Leem was furiously angry because it was obvious he had made an error. The Serene had no cabin, let alone a cargo hold. Nevertheless, balancing awkwardly on the Serene's midship thwart, he demanded, "'Identify yourself. What is your business here?' "'I am Alex Checkerfield. Just here on holiday, sir, yeah? I was looking at the seagulls up there.' Mr. Leem swallowed back his rage and glanced over at the cutter for support. Riley seemed to be hiding. He looked back at the immense young man. The youth smiled in a friendly way, but there seemed far too many teeth in the smile. Well, <clears throat> under the authority invested in me by the Trade Council, I hereby inform you I intend to search this vessel. Sure? His ears were prickling with red heat. Mr. Lean bent over and looked at the thwarts, and under them, and under the seat cushions, checked all along the rail for tow lines, ordered Alec to rise and checked among the stern sheets when Alec had politely complied. Having found nothing, he glared at Alec once more. <clears throat> Please present your identification disc, he ordered. Shrugging, Alec got it out and handed it over. Upon discovering that Alec's father was the Earl of Finsbury, Mr. Leem glanced over at the laser cannon and felt a chill descend along his spine, pinning all his hopes on the possibility that Alec, being an aristocrat, would also be an idiot, he decided to brazen it out and said, "'Very well. Everything seems to be in order. I'd advise you to avoid these platforms in future, young man. They are clearly marked as breeding sanctuaries for the black-footed gull.' "'Oh, sorry.' "'You may proceed.' said Mr. Leem, and scrambled awkwardly into his boat, stepping on Riley, who had been crouching behind the fire extinguisher. Retracting his cannon at once, he put about without another word and sped away, leaving White Wake and embarrassment behind him. He was back at the Isle of Wight before it occurred to him to wonder why the Serene hadn't shown up on the satellite data. 
When he was well out of earshot, Alec howled and pounded on the thwart in delight. Captain, sir, did you see that? He shouted. He couldn't pin a thing on us. That was so cool. I saw it well enough, I, said the captain irritably, materialising in the prow. Now we know why the other bastards dumped the loot and took off for Tahiti, and I wish to hell we could do the same. Put her about. We're getting well away from here before that loony changes his mind and comes back for us. Aye, aye, sir, Alec leaned on the tiller, chuckling. The captain did the electronic equivalent of wiping sweat from his brow and peered back at the retreating cutter until it vanished in the lee of the Isle of Wight. Below, the Long John rose from its hideaway and paddled faithfully under the serene, towing its clutch of sugar crates. They kept to a course that took them due south for a while, well out to sea, before the captain judged it safe to beat the west and plot a long, evasive course back to Poole. Alec lounged back in the stern sheets and congratulated himself on what he thought was the adventure of his life, replaying Mr Leem's search in his head several times, and each time he thought of more clever things he might have said or imagined ways in which he might have turned the tables and captured the coastal patrol cutter. If only he had a laser cannon too. He was distracted from such pleasant speculation by a sail to port. After watching it cleanly a few minutes, he said, Captain, they're in distress over there. Looks like she's adrift. Shouldn't we go and see if we can do anything? Hell no, said the captain. Just to keep you on your course and mind your own business, laddie. But, Captain, there's somebody waving. Looks like a girl. Can't see anybody else. Maybe she's stuck out there all alone. Then she's safe, ain't she? Son, we ain't got time for this. She might be sinking. We have to see, at least. So saying, he steered straight for the other vessel as the captain pulled his beard and growled words that would have scoured the barnacles and five layers of marine varnish off a yacht's hull. None of them dissuaded Alec from his fit of gallantry, however, so the captain dematerialised and sent his primary consciousness into the Long John, where he concentrated on keeping pace with the Serene. Ahoy! Alec shouted. Sea spray too! Are you having problems? Something's gone wrong with my electronics, cried the mistress of the sea spray too. I can't make the steering wheel work. I don't know what to do with all these sails. Can you come and have a look? OK, Alec replied, by this time close enough to throw a line to the other vessel and bring the siren alongside. Permission to come aboard, he cried jocularly, vaulting the rail of the sea spray and landing on her deck with a thump. He'd always wanted to say that. I was quite pleased with himself now, even more so as he gazed down into the eyes of the young lady before him. Wow, you're tall, she said in awe. She was pretty had red hair and green eyes, and wore only a small cotton shirt and the bottom half of a bathing suit. She smelled like paradise. Um, yes, I am tall, said Alec, foggily. So, you said it was your console, right? It says I've got a fatal error, the girl looked up at him pleadingly. First the boat stopped, and then the sails sort of rolled themselves up and down, and now they're stuck like that. Maybe you know what to do. Well, I'm pretty good with systems, said Alec, feeling his heartbeat speed up. I guess I'll just get my tools and have a look, OK? Oh, goody, said the girl. When Alec scrambled back into the siren, there was a message blinking on the console screen. It said, Alec, don't be a bloody jackass. Ain't nobody supposed to know about the things you can do with your toolkit. Alec, tell the wench you'll send the navsat a distress signal and somebody will be around to pick her up later. Alec, are you reading me, boy? Alec! 
Smiling confidently, Alec ignored the screen and grabbed up his tool case. He was whistling a bicycle built for two as he climbed back aboard the Sea Spray 2. He slipped on his earshells and visor, plugged himself into the Sea Spray's console and at once knew perfectly well what the matter was. He could see it like a broken wall in a burning field, strings of symbols in sad or disarray, ravaged as though an army had marched through them. But he pretended to run diagnostics and look at components while the girl watched anxiously and chattered at him. Daddy's boat, and I wasn't supposed to go out alone, but I got mad. I guess that was so silly of me. But I really wanted to record the sounds of the open sea for this project we're doing in Circle. And I didn't know it was so quiet out here, did you? So I tried to hook up the hologram to get some images. Well, that's when it all went wrong. You used the wrong port, Alec informed her. And it got semantic paradox going, and now your console thinks it's in dry dock for maintenance. That's why it won't let you go any place. Oh, said the girl and in her chagrin she added a mildly obscene word, which caused Alec to have a semantic paradox of his own. He coughed and drew his toolkit over his lap, and assured her, "'But I can fix it, no problem.' "'Oh, thank you!' exclaimed the girl, and threw her arms around him from behind and kissed his cheek. Alec could feel her pulse racing, hear her quickened breath, and her scent was telling him... His mouth began to water... He held on to his purpose like a drowning man and pretended to do things to the console with a micro-gapper while he sent his mind roaring through the error zone, adjusting, writing, realigning. There was a low roar, the fusion generator started up and a clear, precise voice said, All systems operational. Set course, please. <coughs> Th there you go, said Alec hoarsely. Uh, what course do you want? I just needed to go back to Yarmouth, said the girl, looking at him with wide, helpless eyes. Can you set the course for me? Course laid in, said Alec, and put away his visor and ear shells. You can set sail any time. OK, said the girl. Thanks so much. He lurched to his feet, and she stared at him, or, to be more precise, at the front of his shorts. Uh, I guess I'll just go then. Um, would you, would you like to see what the cabin looks like inside? They considered each other for a moment. Alec gulped, and in the terribly suave voice he had heard men using on hollow shows said, So, babe, can I interest you in exploring the amazing mysteries of life with me? And he gave her the daredevil smile that had caused Beatrice Louise Jagger's knees to weaken. The girl smiled at the big, strong stranger, and her smile was bright and sharp-edged. She glanced up once in the general direction of the satellites, and then, with a graceful inclination of her head that indicated Alex should follow her, stepped down into the secure privacy of the sea spray's cabin. Like black stars, a row of asterisks rose above the horizon. Somewhere... A train roared down a tunnel, and white breakers foamed and crashed, and a missile was launched in majestic clouds of flame. Sky rockets climbed in graceful arcs through heaven to burst in glory with a boom and thump that were felt in the marrow of the bones, and the slow fire drifted down gently afterwards. That was really lucky, you having a packet of happy healthies. Alec murmured. The girl yawned and stretched in bliss. Saved you going back to your boat to get yours, didn't it? 
Alec, who was not paying proper attention, nuzzled her and replied, "'I haven't got any, actually.' "'Tut-tut!' the girl smacked at him playfully. "'How many do you go through a week, you wicked stud?' "'Dozens,' Alec lied, nestling in close again and inhaling the fragrance of her hair. "'So, anyway, will you marry me? "'I mean, we'll have to wait a few years until I come of age, "'but I'll buy you a cool engagement ring.' For a heartbeat space more, she was as warm and yielding as she had been, and then he felt something like quicksilver run through her. "'You haven't come of age yet?' she inquired in an odd voice. "'Not exactly, no. "'When'd you turn eighteen? The girl grabbed his chin in her hands and tilted his head up to stare into his eyes. "'Not for another four years,' said Alec. She screamed and seemed to evaporate like mist so quickly she was out of his arms and dragging the sheep between them. You can't be fourteen! You're huge! Half an hour ago you didn't have a problem with me being huge. But I'm eighteen! Don't you know what they'll do to us if anybody found out? Don't you know what they do to me? Nobody will find out. Oh my God, you're in the fourth form! I'm never going to live this down now. Get out! Get out! Frightened and crestfallen, Alec pulled on his clothes as quickly as he could. Oh, I'm really sorry, he said. Uh, can I look you up in four years? You're the most wonderful... Get out! He'd recovered himself enough to be grinning guiltily as he put the siren about and sped away. But as soon as it was safe, the captain burst into existence, glaring at him from the prow. If you ever sing that goddamn daisy song at me, I'll keelhaul you, you ungrateful little swab. I'm sorry, it was funny. Not to an AI, it ain't funny. OK, sorry. And you gone and risked the job for the first lassie you spied. And me down there with the long john and the cargo the whole time, gnashing me teeth in case that bloody cutter comes back. And what you're doing, huh? Dancing the peg-leg waltz with some duke's daughter from Yarmouth, what ain't got no more wits than you do. What did you promise me, eh? What did they tell you about how dangerous it was? At least she were of age. Alec glowered at his knees. It's not like anybody will ever find out. You can be damn sure that lady ain't telling. Not with a lifetime in hospital waiting for her if she does. You ain't so much as sniffing at another wench until you comes of age, boy, do you hear? Yes, sir. I mean that now. The captain drew a simulcrum of a large red handkerchief from his breast pocket and went through the motions of mopping his face. Bloody hell. You think this is easy for me, hmm? Me, what started out only as a, a playfriend module. If they got you the Pembroke Young Person's Companion, I'd have had some files on puberty ready-made. But no, no, poor old Captain Morgan's only rated ages 2 to 11, huh? Everything else got to improvise on his own, ain't he? Jesus bloody Christ, Alec. Yes, sir, sorry. The captain gave the appearance of collapsing onto the midship thwart, sighing and resting his elbows on his knees. He stared hard at Alec. Oh, hell, I uh, I don't reckon you're going to make it to 18 without setting your jib boom a few times. But will you promise me you'll wait a couple more years at least? And don't ever do it again when you're likely to get caught with the Coastal Patrol. Yes, sir. That's my boy. At least it don't seem to have given you no traumas. Oh, no, said Alec earnestly. It was brilliant. Fabulous. Oh, Captain, it was the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me. "'Until she started screaming and telling me to leave,' he added. "'Well, that happens sometimes. You got away clean, I reckon.' 
And we've still got the sugar, Alec pointed out. We're successful smugglers, Captain, sir. We'll be successful when Long John's made the drop off Fitzworth Point and that depraved lubber transfers the funds like he's agreed to. Not a four. We ain't working this bit of coast again, not with that damn maniac and his laser cannon out there. Oh, it'll all turn out fine. Alec leaned back again, allowing his grin to return. And life is pretty cool, isn't it? Lost my virginity and outfoxed my first customs official all on the same day, yeah? Let's celebrate. Can I have some music, Captain, sir? Rolling his eyes, the captain went through the motions of pulling a battered concertina from cyberspace and proceeded to play a medley of the old seafaring tunes Alec had loved since he was five years old. Music boomed from the siren's console. Alec sang along, baying happily as the little sailboat sped across the water towards their rendezvous at Pool Harbour, with the Long John following faithfully just under her keel. "'This is only the beginning, Captain Sir!' Alec yelled. "'One of these days we'll be really free! "'We'll have a tall ship with a hold full of cargo! "'And we'll have adventures! "'And maybe we'll find a girl who'll come with us and... "'Oh, how do you like a couple of little tiny pirates running around, eh? "'Sort of like grandkids! "'Wouldn't that be really cool?' "'He whooped and beat his chest in sheer exuberance. "'Oh, yeah. "'Today I am a man!' Not by a long shot, laddie, thought the captain. Not by a long shot, regarding his boy as he played on. Glumly, he contemplated the puzzle of Alec's DNA and reflected that Alec was unlikely ever to be a man any more than he himself was one, at least in the sense of being a member of the human race. One of these days, the boy would have to be told. And now the captain had puberty to worry about. And how, oh how, was Alec ever going to find a girl who'd come with him? A lover would get close to his boy, would notice all sorts of little odd things about Alec. Where was there a girl who'd love Alec enough to stay if she knew the truth about him? One worry at a time, the captain decided, and accessed the stock exchange to see what promising investments might present themselves for the payoff from this job. He had to make his boy independently wealthy after all, and there were the taxes to be evaded. The girl was out there somewhere. She'd wait. Now, come on, how about that? Yes, <laughs> that was just fantastic. Martin, first-class job, honestly. Cage Baker, first-class job there. Thank you, you two so much for allowing the Starship Sofa, the audio science fiction magazine, to join two forces and bring them together. Don't forget, copyright... Belongs to K.H. Baker. No going on sneaky, sneaky often and trying to make a little quick book on that. Just jump in now and for the some comments on last week's story, which was, if you remember, Spider Robinson's distractions, or distraction narrated by his good self as well, his highness. <laughs> I haven't had one negative bit of feedback from this short story. And I was quite, mm, you know what I mean? Like you say, it just wasn't science fiction at all. Do you know, this time, you know, I don't know if I was like maybe crossing that, blurring them lines a bit too much, you know what I mean? I don't know if I was like rubbing my finger along them and really blurring them, but I thought I'll stick it out, you know what I mean? I was like chuffed a bit spider, I'd actually personally recorded that for Starship Sova, and like I say, not one bad comment. Amber Bug, she says, yeah, adored spider stories for quite some time, haven't been a fan since my early teen years. His voice is wonderfully melodious and the story were great fun. The ending took me completely by surprise, but then remembering it was Spider, it didn't anymore. Wonderful, in fact. 
Amberbug, thank you very much. Expat Paul, great story, Amberbug is right. It really does draw you in, and the ending was fantastic. It really raised a smile for me last night. Expat Paul, good member on the forums there. How are you doing, sir? Thank you for that. John B says, great fun. It didn't bother me one bit. It wasn't SF. It was a good story, and that's what matters. John B, thank you very much. Excellent. Rodok. I'm a new to Wednesday shows. Great short story. Maybe a warning from Spider to leave him alone to write. Yes, I actually thought that as well. You know, I was thinking, I wonder if actually Spider Robinson's been burgled and this is kind of taking it, or the only way he can take it into his own hands and, and dish out some dirt. Matthew Sanborn-Smith. Hello, Matt. Great story. I had no idea where it was going to the end and I was laughing out loud. I tried a Callahan story and didn't care for it, but I loved this one. Thank you, Spider and Tony. Don't thank me, bloody hell. <laughs> I'm just riding on the shoulders of bloody giants here. Yeah. Steve says from the forums, excellent narration, brilliant ending. I too laughed out loud. I was burning scrap wood in the garden, so the neighbours probably think I'm now a pyromaniac. Hey, nothing wrong with that, sir. Join the club. And finally, Fiasco says, I think it's been said, but I just wanted to register my enjoyment of the story. Give me a giggle at 5.30am. Narration was fantastic and a nice pop at the end of the story for a punchline. Thanks again. So like I say, so much positive feedback on that story. And like I say, that's twice I've said like I say. Anyway, I'm <laughs> going. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, say, oh, what the fuck is <laughs> oh, I've never realised that. So what I was saying... I wasn't too sure which way it was going to go, do you know what I mean, when I put this story up. And it's been brilliant. So thank you, Spider, for that. Next on the Starship Sofa, audio science fiction magazine, we have a piece of flash fiction. And actually, I'm going to let Peter Watts take it away. Hello again. I don't know how familiar any of you are with my stuff, but I have developed an unhealthy fascination with brains over the past few years. What they are, how they work, how one part lies to another, and perhaps most ominously, how easily they can be hacked. Now, one especially thought-provoking development involves a patent that Sony Corporation has been quietly renewing every year since 2001, uh, U.S. patent uh, 267118, if you want to chase down the details. For a technology that uses compressed ultrasound to bypass the eyes and ears entirely and plant sensory input directly into the brain. Now, when the media covered it, they were creaming themselves with all sorts of hip references to the Matrix. This was back when the Matrix was hip. And uh, breathless speculation about the gaming and medical applications. I myself, a bit more interested in the political and marketing ramifications. After all, a firing neuron is a firing neuron, Right. And if you get to the point where you can plant sights and sounds in someone's head, what's stopping you from planting an irresistible craving for a certain brand of tampon? What's to stop you from implanting political opinions? So I looked for uh, coverage of any such concerns in the mainstream advertiser-funded media. Wouldn't you know what? I couldn't find any. So I've written a couple of stories on the subject, variations on a theme, you might say. One of them came out recently from Solaris. I may end up reading that here if, if the good folks at Starship Sofa want me to. Uh, but the other is a short piece that appeared in the journal Nature last December. And this is fitting because Nature also printed a recent article by Kendrick Kay and his buddies called Identifying Natural Images from Human Brain Activity. Now, this reports on their own progress in using MRI technology to read minds. 
specifically to be able to tell what a person is looking at by deciphering the electrical activity in the visual cortex. It's early days yet, but I heard an interview with Dr. K a few weeks back, and he's anticipating a time, maybe 30, 40 years down the road, when these machines will be able to literally read our dreams. He was, to give him his due, good enough to allow that we might want to look into certain privacy issues before that happens. Anyhow, that's the the story behind this story. Repeating the past also throws in a bit of a nod to a quote from George W. Bush on the subject of memory. It's the shortest story I've ever written. In fact, uh, this introduction is probably more long-winded than the story itself is. So, let's get to it. Repeating the past by uh, me. What you did to your uncle's grave was unforgivable. Your mother blamed herself, as always. You didn't know what you were doing, she said. I could accept that when you traded the shofar I gave you for that emotive headset, perhaps, or even when you befriended those young toughs with the shaved heads and the filthy mouths. I would never have forgiven the swastika on your game pod. But you are my daughter's son, not mine. Maybe it was only adolescent rebellion. How could you know, after all? How could any child really know here in 2017? Genocide is far too monstrous a thing for history books and grainy old photographs to convey. You were not there. You could never understand. So we told ourselves that you were a good boy at heart, that it was ancient history to you, abstract and unreal. Both of us doctors, both familiar with the sad stereotype of the self-loathing Jew. We talked ourselves into treating you like some kind of victim. And then the police brought you back from the cemetery, and you looked at us with those dull, indifferent eyes, and I stopped making excuses. It wasn't just your uncle's grave. You were spitting on six million others, and you knew, and it meant nothing. Your mother cried for hours. Hadn't she shown you the old albums, the online archives, the family tree with so many branches hacked off mid-century? Hadn't we both tried to tell you the stories? I tried to comfort her. An impossible task, I said, explaining never again to someone whose only knowledge of murder is the score he racks up playing zombie hunter all day. And that was when I knew what to do. I waited. A week. Two. Long enough to let you think I'd excused and forgiven as I always have. But I knew your weak spot. Nothing happens fast enough for you. These miraculous toys of yours, electrodes that read the emotions, take orders directly from the subconscious. They bore you now. You've seen the ads for improved reality, sensation planted directly into the brain. Throw away the goggles and the earphones and the gloves. Throw away the keys. Feel the breezes of fantasy worlds against your skin. Smell the smoke of battle. Taste the blood of your toy monsters so easily killed. Immerse all your senses in the slaughter. You were tired of playing with cartoons, and the new model wouldn't be out for so very long. You jumped at my third option. You know, your mother's working on something like that. It's medical, of course, but it works the same way. She might even have some sensory samplers loaded for testing purposes. Maybe, if you promise not to tell, we could sneak you in. Retired, yes, but I never gave up my privileges. Almost two decades since I closed my practice, but I still spend time in your mother's lab, lend a hand now and then. I still marvel at her passion to know how the mind works, how it keeps breaking. She got that from me. I got it from Treblinka, when I was only half your age. 
I, too, grew up driven to fix broken souls. But the psychiatrist's tools were such blunt things back then. Scalpels to open flesh, words and drugs to open minds. Our techniques had all the precision of a drunkard stomping on the floor, trying to move glasses on the bar with the vibrations of his boot. These machines your mother has, though. Transcranial superconductors, deep-focus microwave emitters, spindle resonators, specific pathways targeted, rewritten, erased completely. The very names sound like incantations. I cannot use them as she can. I know only the basics. I can't implant sights or sound, can't create actual memories. Not declarative ones, anyway. But procedural memory? That I can do. The right frontal lobe, the hippocampus, basic fear and anxiety responses. The reptile is easily awakened. And you didn't need the details. No need to remember my baby sister face down like a pile of sticks in the mud. No need for the color of the sky that day, as I stood frozen and fearful of some real monster's notice should I go to her. You didn't need the actual lesson. The moral would do. Afterwards you sat up, confused, then disappointed, then resentful. That was nothing! It didn't even work! I needed no machines to see into your head then. Senile old fart doesn't know half as much as he thinks. And as one day went by and another, I began to fear you were right. But then came the retching sounds from behind the bathroom door. All those hours hidden away in your room, your game pod abandoned in the living room. And then your mother came to me, eyes brimming with worry. Never seen you like this, she said, jumping at shadows, not sleeping at night. This morning she found you throwing clothes into your backpack. They're coming, they're coming, we gotta run. And when she asked who they were, you couldn't tell her. So here we are. You huddle in the corner, your eyes black-bigging holes that can't stop moving, that see horrors in every shadow. Your fists bleed. Nails gouging the palms. I remember when I was your age. I cut myself to feel alive. Sometimes I still do. It never really stops. Someday, your mother says, her machines will exercise my demons. Doesn't she understand what a terrible mistake that would be? Doesn't history, once forgotten, repeat? Didn't even the worst president in history admit that memories belong to everyone? I say nothing to you. We know each other now so much deeper than words. I have made you wise, grandson. I have shown you the world. Now I will help you to live with it. Now, what a story that was. Do you know what I mean? So short, yet so powerful. You know what I mean? That's like... Come on, hairs on the back of the neck are now sticking up. I know they are. So, again, copyright is Peter Watts. Don't go messing around with that. But just like to say thank you to Peter Watts for that. Look forward to his shows coming soon as well, his articles. Now, with this flash fiction there, I've got, you know, probably about six or seven, I think, in the bank. And what I wanted to do, or what I was going to do, actually, was put, like, in a flash fiction audio show, you know, oral delight show out on a Wednesday, you know, group them all together. And I thought, no, 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 no. I might as well just kind of add on one, you know, on a kind of normal Wednesday night. And just, it's part of the, it's part of the service the Starship Sofa does. 
And then I was thinking, what would really be a good idea is if I opened up the flash fiction to anyone who wants to participate. So this is the announcement. If you want to have a piece of your flash fiction narrated and played on the Starship Sova, you know, little audience there of sometimes 4,000 people, sometimes, you know what I mean, the best one. Send send us send it over. Send it to me, starshipsova at gmail.com. So if you make it 600 words and say science fiction, but with the edges blurred, so sometimes, you know, things other things can take in or other things can come about. It doesn't have to be purely science fiction. And the intention is to play, you know, one a week. So there's only 52 weeks in a year. Don't, you know, send us 20 submissions. Just send one at a time in an email. And if I like it, I'll play it. Obviously, it's again, it's done for the love. But if you want to get your story narrated on the show, send us a piece of flash fiction. There you go. So on to one more, a last poem. Why Goldfish Shouldn't Use Power Tools by Laurel Winter First, they would probably be electrocuted, as it is dangerous to mix water and electricity. But what about battery power, you ask? For example, a cordless drill with modified trigger, sensitive enough to respond to a filmy pectoral fin so that even an angelfish could activate the bit. I mean, you say, what about Navy SEALs? Don't they use power tools underwater? Couldn't those be modified? Well, yes, technically it could be done. But think about it, your goldfish, swimming around in their bowl, atop your Louis-whatever pedestal table, and an antique doily handed down from great-aunt Beatrice, who could have given you a million dollars, but no, it was the doily instead. Those goldfish with a dazed expression, and vacant eyes and no cerebral cortex to speak of? Do you really want to give them that kind of power? Those kinds of tools? Think about it. Think about water damage and how foolish you'd feel filling out the insurance claim, admitting that the bowl broke because you empowered your goldfish, gave them power tools and power over their destiny. And how would you know if one of your goldfish had a death wish? It could be murder-suicide, and you would be an accessory. But what about goldfish rights, you say? What about the artistic possibilities, the fine engraving they might do on the inside of the bowl, which I could then sell for a million dollars? Take that, Aunt Beatrice. And what if they're yearning for expression? Okay, fine, expression is good, but steer them in other directions. How about performance art? Turn a video camera on the bowl and give them the opportunity to reveal their souls that way. You can always tape over the boring parts. Goldfish don't seem to understand dramatic structure, or power tools, or the projected angst you are misdirecting. You want a power tool? Get one, for yourself. Buy the goldfish a plastic castle and a bag of colored marbles. Or maybe one of those bubbly skeleton things that goes up and down. You want to give them more than they need. Your own curved reflection stares back at you from inside the bowl. There you go. That poem was narrated by Diane Severson. Links for everything that's been on the show today are will be on the website, so we'll pop over. So... That was a taste of what's to come on Wednesday nights. Hopefully I will have short story, piece of flash fiction, maybe some poems, and then short story, an article narrated, you know. This is where I kind of want to take 
like see that's why I've actually changed you know the name or in my mind I've changed the name you know I'm still a podcast but it's just want to kind of make this thing a whole thing for everyone to kind of to share and enjoy and if you have enjoyed it you know let us know if if I'm doing the right thing you know what I mean? or if, if I'm just if I'm not by all means tell us do you know what I mean what I want to do is just kind of get this kind of science fiction community and just kind of make it enjoyable for everyone and everyone like you see it it's like a two-way thing this do you know what I mean you send emails into us you know participate on the forums like that I kind of give out this stuff let's just make this science fiction because at the minute it just seems it's one big buzzy thing and everyone seems to be enjoying it so please follow on and help yourself listen listen along with me and if you know if you kind of do think that was Tony hey to be quite honest that was a nice show do you know what I mean and if it is filling in a little bit of time you know on that kind of commute to work and if hopefully if you're sitting on buses or if you like you say if you're burning rubbish at the weekend go on Steve if you know you're doing anything and you're liking what I'm doing and it's kind of it is filling in a little gap do you know what I mean this is the kind of most important thing if it is brightening your day please think about donations do you know what I mean it's just one of these kind of like a two-way thing do you know what I mean give a little bit back just say hey Tony you're right there you go, mate. There's a pint of lager. <laughs> Physically, a pint of lager. But you're getting like a show like what's just come through the internet there for you from Starship Sova. I just think, fantastic. So if you can, pop over the website. Two buttons on there. There's the donations button, the monthly one and the normal one. Give whatever you feel that the show's worth to you. Hopefully you have enjoyed tonight's show and hopefully you will send us in your short stories. Don't forget to check out the website, www.starshipsova.com. And if you want, send us flash fiction. Keep in touch with us, starshipsova at gmail.com. Let us know what you feel. And like I say, don't forget, if you want to give a donation, it would really help me. I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.